Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to today's episode of the Africa Legal Podcast. And today I am joined by members of both ALN Nigeria and Kenya. And we're going to explore pan-African ESG trends, specifically in relation to the mergers and acquisitions and corporate transactions space. Now from Aluko Oyabodi, ALN Nigeria, we have partners Adiolu Idowu and Ajabola Asolo. And from Anjawala and Kana, ALN Kenya, we are joined by partner Dominic Rebello. So let's dive right in. And in a recent interview with Africa Legal, Ajabola and Odiolu, you mentioned that there are both business as well as national and governmental imperatives driving us towards greater engagement with ESG. So let, let's start with a look at this. You know, ESG considerations are, are certainly trending in African M&A and investment due diligence in particular. Now, to what extent does this current environmental regulation that we're operating under, the environments in Nigeria and Kenya, how is this encouraging this compliance requirement for successful transactions, i.e. have the regulators and the legislature caught up with the ESG agenda or are government, are, are businesses tending to embrace the ESG imperatives on their own backs? And Ajabola, can I, can I invite you to lead on that one? Thanks a lot. Um, <clears throat> yes, entirely correct. Um, ESG imperatives are becoming much more prominent in Nigeria and the wider West Africa region. Um, it is a combination, to answer your question directly, it's a combination of, it's driven principally by both you know, legislative and regulatory imperatives and also business on their initiative as well. Um, yeah. And as it pertains to the M&A and DD space for investments and the wider regulatory environment is evolving, and, you know, ESG as a DD line item in, in that space is becoming more and more crucial to the success of transactions. Um, and clearly, as the corporate m space evolves, it will become even more so. So in Nigeria, for example, um, you know, a, a number of regulations set out ESG obligations that pertain to companies, um, whether you be on the um, target side or the um, investor side. So to start with, the principal legislate, legislation that applies to corporates in Nigeria does spell out, um, you know, a provision that imposes, you know, a duty on directors to ensure that they act in the best interest of companies and that um, companies have due regard to the environments in which the environments and communities in which the operations are based yep. out. And yep. I must note that this is an unfortunate enforce or act an actionable obligation at law you know okay yeah yeah, yeah. In, ad- in addition to that th- th- there's um a guideline which has been issued by the Securities and action commission in late well in nigeria that also sets out broad principles and recommendations um pertaining to sustainable finance and this guideline essentially mandates all regulators to report on their progress as it pertains to implementing esg principles um, to the regulator and in their annual reports. The, the exchange group here, the um, NGX in Nigeria, where public companies list their securities, um, 
all, or the equity securities also has issued a guideline, right, which essentially requires all listed companies to disclose and report ESG matters as a relevant and material to their businesses in in their annual reports or in standalone sustainability reports. And the um, financial regula- financial reporting council of Nigeria also um, has issued code of corporate governance that a- outlines an obligation to discharge clear ESB ESB imperatives within Nigeria. There's also something um, contained in um, in the um, Petroleum Industry Act, which mandates um, companies okay, yep. in the, in the, um, in the um, energy space to ensure that they meet requisite um, health, safety, and environmental standards. So I say all of this just to say, just to outline that, that there is what, what, what one can refer to as a fast evolving and robust um, you know, legal and regulatory premise for ESG um, in addition to the fact that businesses are just taking it more seriously on their initiative. Um, so, you know, what we're going to be seeing ultimately in the um, mid to long term in the M&A space here is that from the perspective of the target, um, you know, evidence of maintaining a strong compliance posture as it concerns ESG regulatory obligations um, will we'll obviously you know, get to the point where this will be a go or no go dynamic in M and A transactions in the yep. future. Um, yep. So, yeah. You know, um, Adrabello, I'm just I'm keen to ask a follow up question there. So, you know, you mentioned the petroleum industry, obviously massive in Nigeria. We've got the Securities and Exchange Commission when it comes to, um, you know, financial services, and then we've got listed companies. So, these are three kind of powerhouse regulatory environments that cover a lot of the, uh, you know, uh, companies within the Nigerian market. Are there any, are you seeing any that are being under-regulated or under-driven in an ESG, you know, space that you'd expect to to have been? I'm thinking, you know, pharmaceutical, FMCG, you know, those that are falling in between the listed pharma and financial services space. Do you, is there any sector in your market you feel is a, uh, in need of further guidance or are most of them moving towards some degree of encouragement and guidance and regulation in the ESG space? Thanks a lot for that question. It's a very good one. Um, I do think that, and ideally can chime in at some point, I, I do think that broadly speaking across the entire value chain um, in Nigeria at the moment, I do think regulatory actors and legislative actors are pushing um you know, um, industry shaping, industry changing legislation across the entire value chain. Um, it's entirely mm. conceivable that um, some segments of the value chain might be at um, pre- preliminary or developmental stages. But I think across the entire value chain, we're seeing movement. We're seeing we're seeing a legislative action in pharmaceuticals. So there's just been a new pharmaceuticals law passed by the National Assembly. Um, obviously, there are imperatives that are outlined in there as well. Um, we're, we've seen. We're seeing movement in the startup space as well. There's just been a new startup act passed. There are imperatives that, that you can draw to ESG as well. So, so we're seeing we're seeing action across the entire value chain. I, I would say, broadly speaking, relative to the um, relative to where Nigeria is as a, as a as a developed as a developed economy or otherwise, uh, you know, put broadly speaking. For sure. Adeolu, let's have you you weigh in here. I think this is an issue that you can definitely speak to with confidence. 
Sure. Um, thank you very much. So I just wanted to add that um, with regards to, to ESG across the other industries, um, we always have to remember that ESG is obviously the environment, the social and the governance and the regulation we're seeing has had sort of greater weight in the different sort of ESG areas. So I would say, for instance, we've seen a lot of activity in the governance space with regards to yeah. improved standards of governance, uh, greater regulation, the code of corporate governance that um, Ajibola mentioned, and companies themselves just understanding that good governance is good business and really trying you know, to adapt the way they run their businesses in a way that ensures um, sustainability from an, from a governance perspective and sort of addressing all those various good things that, you know, sort of like the ESG uh, principles prescribe with regards to, you know, the boards, um, the management, um, you know, uh, all the various, their policies, diversity, you know, all those things that uh, we'd like to see in good companies that sort of tell you, give you a health check. Um, and then, but also in the social space, there's increased activism as well um, within that space. And remember as well, part of the regulation is also from the press or the social media, et cetera. So you can see that it's affecting businesses more in addition to the regulation um, that, it's, that is emanating um, forth. And so we've seen that that as well uh, in that space, there's increased uh, regulation with regards to community impact, with regards to stakeholder impact. So in the social space, there's definitely a lot of movement there. And definitely we all know with regards to um, the environment, um, even though Africa is uh, one of the lowest, uh, the lowest um uh, has the lowest impact, but certainly we're having to come up quite quickly with regards to the laws. And there was a climate change act that Nigeria passed, for instance, and various things. And even the oil industry is self-regulating as well um, with regards to to the environment. So that's you know sort of what I'll I'll, I'll quickly add on that. Thank you. No, I, I think absolutely excellent points and. It is really important to note this, you know, we've got our um, general council forum coming up at the mining in Darbar. And one of the topics is 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 ESG, most obviously. And, and something we've come up with with ESG, it's a tidy acronym, but nightmare fuel for many in-house council in that the three issues, environmental, societal and governance, they're huge in their own right. So I think you made an excellent point there to go, look, not every regulator sits there and goes, right, this is our ESG regulation. It's, you know, some have a heavy leaning onto the environmental, other societal, other, you know, governance base, usually starting with the governance. You know, it's the most rule based typically and, and enforceable um, of, of the ESG components. Um, so I think absolutely Brilliant to add. And also a quick reference to what, shall we refer to them as our informal regulators, uh, society at large, social media, trial by press, definitely a demographic not to be forgotten. And Dominic, speaking of not to be forgotten, uh, we need some insights from uh, our man in Nairobi. How how are things shaping up in a regulatory environment in, in an East African context? Thanks. Thanks, Thomas. Um, yeah, from the environmental perspective, you know, Kenya is probably one of the leaders definitely on the continent and potentially globally um, in terms of environmental protection. We, we had a new constitution in 2010, which, which was kind of a, one of its kind almost. Um, it entrenches environmental protection, both in its preamble, 
mm-hmm. where, where it states specifically that people of Kenya are determined to sustain uh, the environment for, the, for future generations. Um, and then in the body of the constitution itself, it gives as a fundamental right, the right to clean and a healthy environment for every person in Kenya. So that's a huge right to be given um, under the constitution. And it applies to everybody living in Kenya and then obligates the government to put in place the protections required to ensure that their right is met. So, you know, leading on from that, we have a host of regulation that is very environmental friendly and ensures those protections are granted to, to, to individuals living in Kenya. Those, those, those started, the first one started actually pre the constitution. So back in the late 90s, where we passed the Environmental Management Coordination Act which lays out quality standards and provides for inspection, enforcement, and punishment of environmental offences. And what it means is that every, every project that takes place in Kenya, you have to do an environmental impact assessment and thereafter an annual impact assessment to show what effect you're having on the environment. And your approval is based on, on, on whether you are able to sustain your, your or reduce your environmental impact by, by way of that project. Then more recently, on top of that, we've had various new bits of legislation. We've got a, a Climate Change Act, which came into effect in 2016, um, and that, that pushes measures to combat uh, climate change, which, as we all know, is on the top of everybody's mind. Um, our Energy Act, we're, we're actually very green in the production of energy. In, in some ways, we've been blessed by not having oil, um, natural gas, or, sure. or coal you know, deposits discovered on this side of the continent. So we've been forced to, to generate power from more green resources. So between, I think between 87 and 90% of the national grid in Kenya comes from renewable resources. And that's predominantly uh, geothermal, solar and wind. Um, and, and only a small minority comes from thermal, emergency thermal production. Yep. And that's really entrenched in our, in our Energy Act, which, which promotes um, renewables above uh, non-renewables. And then more recently, like in the last year or so, we've had legislation which is now pushing banks to take environmental um, positions in terms of their lending. So we've got uh, guidance issued by a central bank on climate-related risk management for banks, which, which makes banks take into account what kind of climate impact their borrowers are having from a business perspective. So it becomes an integral part of your your you know, when you go to, to get financing from a bank, you have to demonstrate how you're, how you're combating climate change, etc. And then similarly, our, our Capital Markets Authority, um, which runs the Nairobi Securities Exchange or, or oversees the Nairobi Securities Exchange, they've done a couple of things. They've recently put out a disclosure guidance manual on ESG to try and push listed companies to report what they are doing across the ESG space to their, to their shareholders. And they've also put out policy guidance notes on green bonds with the aim of trying to raise um, climate climate change type financing from green sources. So there's a, there's a lot going on and a lot pushing in the right direction over here. There is a lot going on. And I tell you what, I think that's uh, the no place to hide kind of springs to mind here. They're going after the two M's, the money and the masses. Uh, you know, if you make sure that the money being lent for any kind of project comes with pretty stringent um, criteria when it comes to your ESG credentials. And then I didn't know about that. This is probably ignorance more than anything, but I didn't know about that imparting of the broad-based right to access um, a clean environment. I mean, that that's triggered my uh, class action spidey sense, Dominic. Have we actually seen any um, 
any litigation come out of the back of that broad-based granting of that right yet, or are things still simmering away? Still, still simmering. So because, of, because the Environmental Management Act is also so broad, we see a lot of litigation under that. Um, the, mo- the most recent, actually, was just a couple of weeks ago related to noise pollution in the city. Um, and our new governor went ahead and shut down pretty much all the bars in the city center, or in the city center, residential areas around the city um, as a result of noise pollution. And that was done under the Environmental Management Act. But if, you know, if that didn't work, you could bring a constitutional petition, which is obviously much broader and has broader um, rights that you can claim under it if you wanted to under the constitutional provisions. Very interesting stuff. Now, I want to segue into a bit more of a a forward thinking uh, look here. And it's a broad question that I want to pose here. And Ajibola, I'm hoping that you can start us off. We've talked about regulation. We've talked about the informal regulation of of the, the, the media and society at large. We've talked about investment in the banks. If you were to put your money on a single greatest impact that can drive more engagement with ESG, what, what is it going to be? Is it going to be regulation? Is it going to be general societal pressure? Is it going to be, uh, you know, a focus on in investment standards or something totally different? What, what's the one key issue to your mind? Thanks a lot. Um, I think that from what we're seeing in Nigeria, um, the principal driver is regulation. Um, regulation is a strong driver because the reality is that mm-hmm. uh, economically, you know, there are arguments as to as to what Nigeria can take at this time, and there are, you know, there are, you know, there's a there's a segment of the population, whether it be academia, that continues to advocate that. Um, there are costs to, you know, positioning, you know, positioning um, robustly on the ESG side because, you know, there is a requirement to still make investments in infrastructure. It's not quite clear. Sure. Um, some, some people make the argument it's not quite clear that, you know, that we could segue and pivot into um, ESG as, as or we should do as strongly as we're doing at the moment. But the reality is that in any event, you know, regulation is here. There are obligations to, to, to discharge as it pertains to ESG and regulation is going to drive going forward. Um, if I might just add a couple of things. Um, so, so what we're going to see um, in terms of going forward is that as, as it pertains to the M&A space, right, um, because that's principally where my, where my core practice areas is, um, we're going to see that um, this is going to shape behavior into how a number of things happen going forward, It'll, you know, it would change how people select targets and business partners for acquisitions. Um, okay. So, yep. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So the growing recognition um, of businesses across industries will be that partnering with companies with strong ESG profiles will mean that um, there'll be more value for stakeholders in the long term, more sustainable value for, for stakeholders in the long term. So this will be a major driver going forward. Um, another, another key point to bear in mind will be financing. Um, they're going to be, you know, it's going to be a case that, I mean, it's already happening. Specific financiers will simply only extend financing to specific types of projects or specific types of companies. And 
you know, companies with with robust and strong ESG profiles will be best positioned to to raise good financing. So this is going to be a major driver. It's going to shape behavior going forward. Um, And one thing that we're going to be seeing going forward as well is that a robust ESG profile will correlate with greater value in a business. Um, So, you know, that's going to be understood because that is already filtering into into the M&A space, both on the target side and on the um, acquirer side, people are already understanding, people are beginning to understand that um, ESG, ESG implications um, play a prominent role um, in that the more environmentally friendly you are, um, this will correlate with, with your operational costs, which will in, in turn correlate with the value that will sit in the business, right? So this will shape um, the agenda and the behavior on the um, on the long term, and then something in addition to also shape things will just be trying to implement and, and ingrain even further the outcomes from the, from recently concluded COP twenty seven. Um, these are things that we're going to we're going to see going forward. Um, I just thought to put that out out there. Thanks. No, it's great. It's great insight, Ajapalo, and I do think you know regulation that has a meaningful impact on a company's long-term perceived value is a bit of the, the holy grail here. You know, you need to regulate current activities, but also showcasing that adherence to this regulation is actually going to make you a standout, you know, target. It's going to offer long-term shareholder or acquirer value. That's where behaviors really start to change. Dominic, I wanted to kind of put a bit of a twist on this question for you. Kenyan regulators, from your last answer, they're not a shy bunch by the by the sounds of it. There really does seem to be quite a, a strong regulatory uh, robustness here. Are you seeing this bedrock of regulation, this this kind of you know watermark, start to trickle into general? populist consensus and and behaviors and and the wider you know business community what i'm trying to say here is is you can't regulate to the nth degree you can't regulate every single behavior what you hope is that your regulation you know you mentioned a preamble before it it's the purpose and the 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 overriding objective of regulation which goes beyond the hard and the specific wording to influence on a societal or a, a broadly commercial level, are you? Is this occurring? Ha, has the regulation led to a more, you know, a, a self-evolving appreciation of ESG and in the environmental issues? Yeah, look, I mean, regulation is only as good as its enforcement. It, it's all very well to have great laws and detailed environmental compliance requirements, but if it's not being enforced, then it's pretty pointless. Um, and, and historically here, our enforcement has probably been relatively low as compared to the level of regulation, unfortunately. But on the bright side, there's two areas where we see where we see this enforcement coming in. It's obviously starting to, to get stronger domestically, but internationally, as has increased international legislation, um, and a lot, of our, a lot of our investment, especially in the M&A space, is FDI-based. So whether that's from DFIs, private equity, multinationals coming in, sure. yep. as they get more regulated and the stricter enforcement in their home jurisdictions, that trickles down to their subsidiaries and the companies they invest in. So they start to impose that on Kenyan corporates who they've got you know, a stake in, which they own, which they deal with, et cetera. 
And so from that perspective, even if the Kenyan regulator is not enforcing the Kenyan law as strongly as they could, the international picture starts to starts to force the Kenyan operations um, to to comply. And then separately, um, the, the societal pressure that you mentioned earlier, you know, we, we actually have a hashtag um, for, for Kenyans on Twitter, KOT. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of KOT. Because <laughs> are, are very, very good at upholding the laws from a, from a general perspective on Twitter. Um, and that's generally what ends up, A, from, from a driving of regulation perspective, they will push their MPs to push through the right legislation. But they also provide a very good check and balance just in terms of enforcement. Um, I'll give you a very recent example where there were three or four baobab trees. I don't know if you know baobabs. They're the big, iconic trees. Oh, I do. Beautiful. Trees. Yeah. And a couple of them were spotted on the back of flatbed trucks being moved around the country. And so Kenyans on Twitter got involved and it became a huge uproar. And the whole thing was shut down. It turned out to be seven or eight of them were due for export to the U.S. to go to some private ranch there. Um, and the whole thing was shut down purely from the public pressure from the populace complaining on Twitter. Um, and so, you know, in the absence of regulators uh, doing doing their, their full job, shall we say, Kenyans are very Out good. Out of interest, though, Dominic, sorry to interrupt. Was there a <laughs> regulatory breach when it came to there the were, export so there of was, those trees? Well, oh, there. Okay. <laughs> Uh, the, 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 the regulator's first position was that the licenses were in place. That obviously didn't stop the Kenyans on Twitter from still pushing the point. And when the regulator went into detail, they found that actually one license was missing or, had, or, or did not relate to what it was supposed to. And so they shut it down. So Fantastic. On it, so it's not purely trial by Twitter, which I'm sure we're exactly. keen to avoid. It was the uh, encouraged populace uh, drawing attention to gross breaches of regulation. Let's 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 put it as that, shall and, we? And then, and then making sure the regulator does their job. The follow through, the ever important follow through. Absolutely. Exactly. That's absolutely fantastic to see. I mean, look, quick bit of devil's advocate here on that for, uh, FDI angle. OK, we all know that a major issue with uh, post-colonial African development has been uh, legislative hangovers, um, non-African, um, you know, uh, legislation and rules still um, being enforced that don't have appreciation of the nuances or the cultural or societal developments that Africa has embraced. They're truly African. If our regulators on the continent don't keep up in enforcing African regulation, is there a risk that we're going to be beholden to foreign rules, foreign developed uh, 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 rules and regulation via the FDI route? Or do you think that's just a useful stopgap as domestic regulators get their shops further in order? Yeah, no, I, th I think it's a useful stopgap. And like I said, you know, our, our regulation is so well developed that it's probably ahead of a lot of what the FDI's the FDI, okay. FDI yeah. are now trying to comply with the you know when, when we see when we see in our M and A transactions the policies and the ESG requirements that a foreign investor is trying to impose on a Kenyan business, the majority of those are already entrenched in Kenyan law. Right, it's just right. a case of they are not being fully complied with. So it's not like they're, they're coming and imposing foreign standards on Kenyan businesses. They are just ensuring stricter compliance with best practice.
Okay, I've got that. That's really clear, and that that is good to hear. Actually, it's far more about just a, a, a it's it's belt and braces. It's it's just making sure that the entrenched regulation is adhered to and respected, rather than trying to usurp any any domestic exactly. regulations. Exactly. That, that's good to know. Let, let's move on to a bit of a sector focus here. Um, uh, and Adiolu, I'm going to have you you lead on this. Uh, now, we've mentioned the petroleum industry here. That That's one of what I think, uh, you know, some of the, the sectors having the highest volume of M&A in, in, in Nigeria in particular is, you know, finance, energy, in particular petroleum, uh, you know, across the rest of the continent, mining and utilities all stand out. But there are two sectors here that traditionally have the most complex relationship <laughs> with ESG, these being mining and energy. So in your experience, Adiolu, uh, you know, are these sectors facing up to greater ESG scrutiny from investors, regulators, and the wider populace in a in an encouraging and forthright way, or are these, you know, the petroleum and mining sectors are are they still trying to get away with what they can? To be very blunt, thank you, Thomas. So, um, so that's that's actually um, you know loaded question, um, and in Nigeria. Um, in the oil and gas industry, we've seen uh, some of the major oil and gas um, companies actually divesting of their onshore assets. So, um, and um, in terms of why they've been doing that, uh, it's been it's uh, it's been realized that they've done that because of the increased activism with uh, by way of vandalism and the. Um, the social sort of negative um, perception that they have, uh, they have gained in the in the marketplace and in the communities. The communities have become extremely hostile to them because of the their lack of um, adherence to um, sort of environmental standards for many, many years. Gas flaring, for instance, was something they just did a um, a financial calculation and and decided that uh, gas flaring was perhaps more economically advantageous to them than, you know, to sort of um, take steps to to stop it and to to have more environmentally friendly practices. So, but fast forward now, they're moving towards, um, there's a global focus on renewable energy. And so they've, uh, the, some of the major uh, oil companies in Nigeria are divesting of those onshore assets, focused, focused more on their, um, on their deep offshore assets um, and then they're selling off those uh, onshore assets that are quite problematic for them. And for, for in some cases, for years, they actually, due to um, community activism, they have not actually been able to operate those assets or to, to get the economic value um, out of them. So that's that's been um, quite a driver in, in, in the oil and gas industry. But again, the flip side of that, however, is also that Nigeria is developing. Africa is, you know, Almost the whole of Africa, we're all developing countries. And so, therefore, we require um, infrastructure. We require uh, sort of just the basic things that we need to evolve as developing economies. And so, um, given, you know, um, the level of um, um, the low levels of our contribution, contribution on the environmental side 
towards uh, uh, towards pollution um, and climate change, then the question then becomes, you know, how much do we contribute towards that in terms of, uh, you know, our march towards um, um, uh, the carbon um, objectives. But, and so when you have conversations around that with businesses in, in say, Nigeria, the focus, even though we understand that the all, you know, there's the, there's the linchpin. And I think part of the reason why the oil industry is leaving as well is because they found it increasingly difficult to fund those assets, again, given the global imperative. So in addition to the regulation, there's certainly a commercial linchpin when you're trying to find funding. And I think um, uh, uh, Dominic also sort of spoke to that as well. Um, so it is, uh, we find out that, um, you know, all those issues sort of come to play in terms of uh, determining what's happening in the M&A space. So we're seeing those divestments uh, um, um, in the M&A space and then local companies are then taking over those assets and, you know, hopefully with better chances of being able to engage with the community and then get the economic value out of those assets. Although there's some sort of, there's, you know, still some of those are still progressing and there's some legal challenges around that with the state oil company. Um, which is now which has now gone private in the mining area. I think also that uh, you know Nigeria has a lot of resources by way of mining that are so far underexplored. So we're certainly looking forward towards ex actually exploring those assets. And um, so rather than limiting what we can do, we're looking more towards you know finding um, more environmentally friendly ways of exploring um, uh, the assets, the mining assets that we have, and there is quite a lot. And even in the oil and gas space, Nigeria actually has a lot more gas than it has oil. You know, there's the anecdote that uh, Nigeria is a, um, is a gas province with pockets of oil. So <laughs> we have more gas than we have oil. So um, in terms of sort of moving towards as, as you know, and, and I think even from COP27, part of what was determined was that it, should, it shouldn't be that we'll be closing out um, against um, um, uh, hydrocarbon, but rather that there will be a winding, a winding down and that gas will perhaps be the transition um, um, between um, crude oil and the move towards um, uh, Sustain, more sustainable, um, renewable energy. And so because of all, all of that, sort of having that in place and then also thinking about how the, the continent needs to be powered in terms of energy, in terms of um, infrastructure to drive growth, uh, and putting all of those into, into, um, into the basket, then it, we find that there's a lot of activity um, on all, in terms of all, you know, sort of the, on the regulator side with regards to the, the, the seeking funding and financing and also from the stakeholder side, um, there's a lot of scrutiny, there's a lot of interest, there's a lot of activity um, in, in those two sort of broad areas, which is oil and gas and, um, and um, uh, the mining industry. And as I said, with Nigeria, we actually haven't really started to explore what we have. And therefore, we're not looking to limit it, but rather to it, perhaps what we will say, we want to evolve in a way that's more, uh, with more friendly technologies, more friendly practices, and regulation will then be built around that to allow us to develop what in a more eco-friendly way. Thank Thanks, Adiola. And I think 
something which is often forgotten when it comes to uh, Africa's involvement with hydrocarbons is that it doesn't need to look like the developed world's historical interaction and engagement with hydrocarbons. The cleanliness of extraction and refinement has dramatically improved. And, you know, so when people have that argument about Africa's energy transition, does there have to be a total bypass of hydrocarbons? My personal opinion is absolutely not, and it would be foolish to do so. Recognize the technological, regulatory, and societal advancements that will allow Africa's pragmatic and sensible utilization of hydrocarbons, particularly in gas, to be utilized as that that stopgap. The word transition needs to be just that, a transition, not a flick of the switch, you know, on off. Um, so great insight. I, I do thank you for it. Dominic, anything to add here from a East African perspective when it comes to two, two heavily uh, regulated but often uh, maligned uh, sectors in, in energy and mining? Yeah, sure. Look, not not much to add. Obviously, on the oil and gas, we we don't have the upstream oil and gas, the 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 reserves that Nigeria has. So there's not much development there. On the mining side, though, we we had new legislation 2016, 2017, a new mining act, plus a whole raft of subsidiary legislation that came out under it, which really upgraded our our mining code to kind of best international practice, and it has all the various protections for for ESG in there. So, you know, requirements for full wraps, resettlement action plans, mine closure plans, etc. And it's also subject to our general environmental legislation. So you have to do all your impact assessments, etc. before you can start a, a project. But despite all of that, you know, we haven't, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not blessed with huge natural resources, shall we say. And the ones that we do have, have been quite hard to develop, really because of our land tenure system where a lot of our land is, well, the majority of our land is privately owned. And going back to that strong constitution that we have, it's very hard for the government to take it over. They have to do compulsory acquisitions, pay out fair market price, etc. Which means that mining projects here, unless they are very large um, and, you know, in the right in the right commodity, so where the price is on the, on the up, they just don't happen. Um, so it's not a huge area for us, to be honest. It's a headache well avoided, at least. I uh, I do think that trying to juggle, uh, you know, uh, heavily extractive base industries can be a real, real challenge for regulators. So maybe, like you said earlier, it's not quite a blessing or a curse. It really does depend on how you approach it. Dominic, I'm going to keep you uh, under the spotlight for our final question here. We Look, it's undeniable that an absence of a strong regulatory you know, regime and requirements have significant impacts when it comes to ESG. But do you think it is it the short, the medium or the long term impacts of a, a poor regulatory function that are most most profound? Um, and what are some of the examples from your experience of the the biggest risks when either ESG regulation is is lacking or where enforcement and adherence is lacking? Yeah, I mean the the risks I think are more long term from from our perspective, and then if they are longer term, you know they tend to get picked up in changes in regulation. The, the short and the medium term ones, like we talked about, are probably picked up in, in global uh, legislation, global enforcement. Um, and then, you know, when you add on top of that, 
the the consumer driven incentives, so the, the societal pressure, um, and even down to kind of you know a younger generation who want to take up jobs in corporates who are more geared towards their ESG compliance than ones who aren't. You you get a whole host of incentives pushing through. And then top that off with with green financing and it getting harder to to get financing where you can't show your ESG compliance. I think all of that helps in the short and medium term to ensure that the enforcement is present and that we're moving in the right direction. Absolutely. And thanks for raising the talent issue there. It's something that I think is often misunderstood, well, often ignored, which is, you know, the best and brightest graduates of the, the generations that are coming up into the workforce, they are strongly driven by uh, you know ESG and environmental in particular issues and they will vote with their their feet when it comes to which organizations they choose to join and a lack of a engaged educated workforce can be an absolute death knell for a business so really really important I think and thank you for raising it um and Adiolu anything to add on the long medium uh, and short term issues related to poor regulation or poor adherence in the ESG space? So I would certainly agree with um, with Dominic, and I think we sort of face the same things um, in, in Nigeria and broadly in, 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 in West Africa. I think in the short term, we've seen that the, the um, stakeholder regulation has had a strong impact, for instance, in the oil and gas industry, like I, I had mentioned, where, where regulatory enforcement was lacking stakeholder enforcement managed to to be the the driver with regards to the corrective activity and then regulation followed and then uh, the commercial imperatives um, also came after that in the in the in the short term and and I think if we go from the medium to the long term I think everybody's starting to understand that um, with regards to entrenching ESG principles into business, that for your long-term sustainability, that it's critical to business. And if I even move away, if I move away from, say, the oil and gas industry or, or the extractive industry, the um, we've seen, for instance, the Nigerian fintech space is quite um, active. Uh-huh. And uh, we've seen that in that space, in the governance area, and fintech in Nigeria has had similar problems to what fintech in, in say, the U.S. has had or where the, the tech, let me, not just the tech, but not just fintech, but the tech industry in, in say, the U.S. has found, which is you have young, um, dynamic, um, um, you know, uh, leaders who start up these businesses, who are sort of tech um entrepreneurs and they grow much faster than the governance uh their governance capabilities can accommodate and they very quickly find themselves in trouble where they haven't set out appropriate structures for governance and don't even understand those structures or have the appropriate sort of people and sometimes it's when they go to the market to seek funding or when they're being there's uh they become the target of um uh an investor that they then find that you know they need to do a lot of housekeeping to be able to become the attractive bride when they want to raise funds or when, when you know they're looking when they they start to play in the MA space. So they quickly start to realize, and some of the newer ones are, are sort of going on the back of the 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 ones that have been ahead of them are coming to realize that it's important to put those structures in place. So in the medium term, 
you know, we're starting to see again that the, the need to grow means that you have to wrap your ESG principles around your business earlier on to make yourselves um, attractive across the board, um, you know, uh, as a business, whether on, on, in the uh, environmental space, in the, in the social space or, or in, the, in the governance space. And in the long term, it's just good business to, to have it, uh, you know, to have, uh, to, to have good ESG practices and to, you know, create um, a structure that uh, embeds, you know, as many of the principles as possible. And I think there's there's no company in the world that can say, I have everything down pat because as we've said earlier, it's just so wide, you know? So so certainly in the long term for sustainability of, of a business, uh, you know, over multiple generations, um, I think everybody's starting to understand that it's good business and that it, in terms of their ability to be able to satisfy all the various stakeholders, and to become a business that is um, uh, that has that sort of long-term view, both of, in terms of the product it offers, uh, the people it does business with, um, you know, and even its its employees. As we've mentioned, that it needs to have all these things in place to ensure that it continues to be a good business, uh, to be able to innovate, to be able to you know maintain its customers, etc. Um, along the line, or uh, along the line, and um, in the long term. Well, thank you for that, Adiolo. And I think we could well go on, um, as is indicative of the size of this ESG topic. But I'm going to be a strict taskmaster, and I will bring us to a close right there. So firstly, a very big thank you to you, Adiolu, Dominic, and Ajibola. Um, and as always, a very big thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time ever, on the Africa Legal Podcast. Do not fear, you can find us wherever you find your normal podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you name it, we are there. And don't forget to visit us at africalegal.com for all the news, views and insights that improve your life as a modern African legal practitioner. So without further ado, we'll wrap things up. And this has been Tom, Adiolu, Dominic and Ajibola, and we're signing off the Africa Legal Podcast.